if we think about church music as primarily sets of statements, then we miss, I think, a lot of what is actually happening for people when they sing church music, and we mischaracterize the differences between groups of people because we presume they're arguing when in fact they're worshiping. That's Jonathan Duick. His new book, Congregational Music, Conflict, and Community, explores three Mennonite congregations in Canada all in the same town, but with three different approaches to musical style. If you're at all familiar with the worship wars, you might think you already know where this is going. But this is a story about being the church and how music reflects and shapes our relationships as the body of Christ. Hi, I'm Crawford Wiley, an organist in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, just outside of Milwaukee. And I'm Sarah Bariza, a church musician and researcher living in Cincinnati. And this is Music and the Church. Today's episode, we're talking with Dr. Jonathan Duick, a dean at Canadian Mennonite University, about his new book, Congregational Music, Conflict, and Community. But first, we have this week's Try This at Church. And my tip this week, you're going to hate me because Advent isn't even here yet, but seriously, get your trumpeter for Easter now. Assuming you're in a tradition that does trumpets. Yes, which which is most of them. But in developing this episode, I found out not Crawford's tradition. No, not as much, or at least not under my tenure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at some churches, you know, you're clearly not Lutheran, because at some churches, you have got to have some brass on Easter Sunday. I've gotten away with it. <laughs> Jesus has not risen if the trump has not sounded, and <laughs> you need a trumpet. <laughs> so seriously, though, my first experience hiring a trumpeter did not go so well, because I very naively... And I do want to say naively, I wasn't being lazy. I naively thought I did not need to hire a trumpeter until Lent started. I mean, there's 40 it days. It seems now. like a reasonable expectation. I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong? very wrong. Uh, well, I did find someone and we had a trumpeter. And um, So in other words, go. the good get gone fast. Well, exactly, exactly. And, and it's expensive. It's not a cheap thing to get brass on Easter Sunday because so many traditions prioritize having brass on Sunday. And I don't mean just trumpeters. Oh, right. And also percussionists for some churches, if, if you have a timpani. Yes, exactly. Timpani. And you get scheduled really fast, especially if you're doing any kind of music right. that's difficult. You have to have someone who's very skilled. Oh, yeah. So if you are in a tradition that hires brass for Easter, do it now. You know, it's October. There's not that much going on, you know, you're probably not celebrating Halloween with a big flashy anything at your church. Well, actually, I take this back. It's Reformation yeah, Sunday. You may be <laughs> sick of trumpeters. If you're in a tradition that needs a trumpeter for Easter Sunday, you might be absolutely sick of brass but right now. while you have your brass for Reformation Sunday, ask them what they're doing on Easter Sunday. Guys, get out your day planners yeah, here. Yeah. What are you doing on April 1st, 2018? Can I no schedule April you fools. now? Next up, our interview with Jonathan Duick. And then for a more serious turn, Crawford and I discuss how we can or should respond to national tragedies through the music we choose for church services. Dr. Jonathan Duick is the Vice President Academic and Academic Dean at Canadian Mennonite University in Winnipeg, Manitoba. We're discussing his new book, Congregational Music, Conflict, and Community, which we'll link to in the show notes. His book is about three Canadian Mennonite churches in Edmonton, Alberta each doing different musical styles in their services, traditional, blended, and contemporary, but worshiping with each other and with other Mennonite churches every year on Good Friday. When we talk about the worship wars and what style of music a congregation uses, we often think the narrative goes like this. I believe X about music, so I do Y in church. But that's not what John discovered when he started interviewing people in these churches, about 70 people in what he calls his initial burst of interviews. What he found is that people would start by talking about belief, but then something else happened. He writes in his book, 
that folks would initially say something to the effect of, it is right that we sing this song. Then they'd move to, it is beautiful to sing this song. And finally, I remember how it was beautiful when we sang this song together. So they're moving from belief to beauty to relationship. Here's John talking about what he found in his interviews. What was interesting in these interviews is they followed a paradigmatic kind of sequence. Talking to one person at First Mennonite Church, for example, they talked about textual and musical depth when they talked about their preferences in church music. So they were attributing a theological, kind of theological reflection and just a depth of thought to hymns that they were at least implicitly counterposing to popular music. And that first layer of response was similar across the board. Across all of these congregations, people would talk about the theological ways in which music functioned in their church, and they would ascribe theological meanings to it. But then people would start talking about particular songs or times, things about the music that they liked. So another interviewee at First Mennonite might have talked about and did talk about the full sound, the full round sound of singing hymnody in, in a context where you have this sort of German tradition of popular hymnody. And you can imagine the big round vibrato and the, the nice four-part harmony, the sort of sense of fullness that comes from that. So they move from a kind of ethical and theological statement to one that was more clearly marked as an aesthetic statement. You move from a statement of it is right when to a statement of it is beautiful or it is feelingful. Then if, if I push them a little further, first I'm thinking of this one person who talked to me about the full roundness of this sound at First Mennonite Church. So I'm just following a train from one of these churches here. He then talked to me about how he became part of the congregation and who he'd married who and how he'd learned about her family. He hadn't grown up with this music, but then he'd learned about the history of it and about the sounds of it and, and how to do it. And he knew that he was an adoptee, but he associated these songs with these particular people and with his induction into the community. Community. You move from it is right to it is beautiful to it was beautiful when you and I sang this together in this particular place. So now we have something that's very contingent and personal. Not exactly personal, but social in a contingent and sort of networked way. In his book, Jonathan describes this movement from belief to beauty to memory by saying, Music becomes beautiful to each of us because it is embedded in our enduring and changing relationships with others. He's developed an analytical framework called an Aesthetics of Encounter. It's a way of thinking about and talking about the relationships that music encourages. Here's Jonathan talking first about what he means by aesthetics, and then about what encounter means in this context. The aesthetics piece is to have us think about the ways in which music engages our bodies and, and our feelings and our senses beyond the music as just a packet of information. We tend to imagine music as a theological proposition of a certain kind. Right? That kind of discourse is privileged in thinking about liturgy, and it's also privileged often in anthropological and ethnomusicological and folklore and other kinds of writing. When we write about religious groups, we tend to want to think about what is the deep communicated meaning, and that meaning for us is textual. So a pattern like I've just described suggests that there's something else happening that isn't textual that text might be a part of it, but that more fundamentally than passing little packets of meaning between people that build up scaffoldings of coherent theologies, we have instead something that people are doing together that engages their bodies in some real-time way together and is, is almost more sacramental, right? doesn't matter what you think about it. It's something that's happening with us. And then if you push a little further, the encounter piece 
tries to locate people in these histories where we're where we're moving from in between places and congregations and contexts, and we bring all those memories with us. And those are parts of the things that make something engage our bodies in a very particular way. They represent people to us, memories to us, and so forth. I asked Jonathan to tell us more about an aesthetics of encounter, especially what this way of thinking about music gives us as people who lead music in church. He says that an aesthetics of encounter refocuses our attention on what we are actually doing in church services through music. We are worshiping. Thinking about church music as if it were a set of theological arguments does pose some problems for ecumenical discourse, and even for discourse among closely theologically related groups of people. Because propositional statements are designed as arguments anticipating and refuting other arguments. Now, they can be more subtle than this. This is kind of a comic book version. But I think because of the normative aspects of theological argument, and because we tend to think about theological texts as having to do with what is true, if we think about church music as primarily sets of statements, then we miss, I think, a lot of what is actually happening for people when they sing church music, and we mischaracterize the differences between groups of people because we presume they're arguing when in fact they're worshiping. An aesthetics of encounter focuses our attention on worshiping. Jonathan says it also argues against the notion that musical style or genre is the most important factor in thinking about music in church services. But this focus on style or genre is something we do all the time. What kind of church service is it? Traditional? Contemporary? That's how we'd like to think about church services and the music we make. But Jonathan thinks we should use this idea of the aesthetics of encounter to focus more on relationships and how our memories of music in relationship with others shapes what we think music is doing in a given instance. There's a long formalist strain in genre criticism that thinks about genre as a really basic and important structure, when I think it is. But it tends to see genres as predisposing and connecting communities with music. And so its point of departure is the group, but it doesn't think of the group of people that would ascribe to a performer genre as very fluid. And it doesn't attend to the, all the externalities that come into the moment of performance, you know, like this guy and his sense of round fullness and so forth. Well, he wouldn't have that sense if he had grown up in this tradition. He had to learn it in this particular way. Why does it sound welcoming to him? He was welcomed when this happened, right? And when he performs it and speaks about it in, in the congregation, he brings those relationships to other other people in the congregation. So there are these new meanings that are being made in that instance of genre that, that actually have to travel with people to get elsewhere and that depend on the particular experiences that attend that music. Even though it's been circulating as media forever, those sort of face-to-face -face and emergent dynamics of, of genre and the, and the fluidity of the communities connected to genre seem, seem important to me. And they make genre look a lot more emergent than it might otherwise look. In this last part of our interview, we're going to dive into one of the three congregations Jonathan studied, Holyrood, the church with a blended worship style. A blended worship style usually means that a congregation's music incorporates traditional hymnody and contemporary-styled Christian songs. But at Holyrood, there was something bigger going on. Holyrood is a church with a history of embracing newcomers and outsiders, from students whose rural location left them without schools, to pastors outside of the church's Swiss Mennonite heritage, and especially global refugees to their city, Edmonton. Some of these refugees are themselves Mennonite and have joined Holyrood. When Jonathan did his first interviews in the early 2000s, Holyrood's congregation included many Congolese members, and when he returned a decade later, the congregation included people from Liberia. In reading John's book, I was continually amazed at how this congregation welcomed newcomers and treated their music as an inheritance, 
as one pastor put it. This was not a congregation that said, yes, you're welcome here, now become like us, but rather a congregation whose newer members were included as equal in the body of Christ. So I had to ask, how did leaders cultivate this way of being the church? How did they minister to people who had been around longer so that they didn't feel like their ways of making music were being devalued or pushed aside? The ethos of tolerance that I think was there in Hollywood was the result of work. I remember when I was there, for example, I would lead music and I I had some role in helping plan music in the congregation. And I remember there was a Congolese musician who came up and did this. You know, Congo's where lots of popular music comes from in Africa, and there are also a lot of Mennonites there. It's, it's one of the largest Mennonite groups in Africa. There was a guy who came to the congregation who was a talented musician and who wanted to become a worship leader. And he would do these, he was a drummer and a songwriter, and he would do these things in, in the congregation. But I remember as, as someone who is a regular song leader and who lived with one of the pastors, that one of the older folks from the church, a really, really nice old man who had been there since the beginning of the congregation, just said, came up and said, you know, this guy played for like 12, 15 minutes here. And it was all in French. I didn't understand it. And I just don't know, you know, what is this guy? I'm okay with listening, but I don't understand the music. I don't understand the language. And more importantly, I don't know what this guy's testimony is. So then we just talked about it for a while and talked about it as being similar to the other kinds of musical accommodation that had taken place for the youth and how you would think of the place of a youth in the congregation and so forth, where, you know, what do you get out of offering, out of having people do music that sounds to you like music that's that's risky, at least, for a Christian to engage in. Well, you get the presence of that other person, and you get to interact with them in a way that, that's, that's not only speaking, even if you have to make space for it. I was basically following the lead of other congregational leaders who had done this kind of go-between work forever. The, the family that had been up north was a key part of this, and so was the pastor, who was this really charismatic Quebecois man. So there were particular people that made that happen. That was definitely a result of work. That was Jonathan Duick, sharing insights from his new book, Congregational Music, Conflict, and Community. It was such a delight reading his book, as chapter drafts a couple years ago, and now in a published form, and we are so thankful he took the time to share it with us. We'll have a link to the book in our show notes on our website, musicandthechurch.com. Tell us what you think. Have you experienced this movement from it is right to it is beautiful to it was beautiful when we sang together? What musical ways have you welcomed newcomers in your congregation? Let us know by email at musicandthechurch at gmail.com. Next up, our In the Field segment, where we dig into the details of church music practice. It feels as if it is becoming increasingly common and I feel like the commonness is part of what makes it so difficult, is that now we wake up two or three times a year and discover that we have a tragedy of national significance, in the sense that a large portion of the population are grieving. They're having to go through the grieving process on some level, or feel that they ought to, and don't know how to process that. And you know that when people come to church, you know, whether it's mass or morning service or whatever, that that's what's going to be on their minds. And I guess the question is, how do we as church musicians respond to that? And the question is also, in what way should our music and, you know, planning the liturgies themselves reflect that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Especially in the context of churches that work with electionary. Right. Where 
ostensibly your selection should be guided by the lectionary. So how much should current events affect your selections? Right, right. Because you don't necessarily want to create a liturgy ad hoc. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, the lectionary readings and related materials are not a straitjacket. Right. And sometimes you can look at the readings in the psalm in the lectionary for a given Sunday and discover ways in which they can actually reflect a larger dealing with that particular tragedy. Like, for instance, okay, so after the shooting in Las Vegas, I was discussing with my priest ways in which we wanted the liturgy to address this, you know, as, as a way for the congregation to express grief and also to express kind of repentance for our participation in the sin of our country. And the psalm for that Sunday happened to be, the refrain was, the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel. And the psalm verses keep coming back to the unworthiness of the vineyard, like the vineyard is broken down and in grief and this plea that God would look upon his vineyard again and have mercy on it. And that just seemed really oddly appropriate. Like, we wouldn't have necessarily thought of that particular psalm for an occasion of national grief. I had a similar a similar thing happen with one of the hymns that I had previously chosen, both in the Catholic Church and the Presbyterian Church where I work. I had chosen How Firm a Foundation because, oh, yeah. if I remember correctly, the gospel reading was related to Christ as the cornerstone Christ has made the sure foundation. Yes. That starts out, How Firm a Foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Uh, so it fits with that reading, but then some subsequent stanzas. Yes. What more yeah, can you yeah, say yeah. than previous said? Went through fiery trials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Through the deep waters. Yes. It was very fitting. So I... I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Exactly. That being said, I did change a few other things. At the Presbyterian Church, I changed the first hymn to By Gracious Powers, and I could also easily have done Be Still My Soul. Which is what we did at St. Jude's. And it's incredibly appropriate, and it's not at odds with the lectionary readings, but I feel like even if it had been... Yeah. Actually, let's talk a little bit about tone, because I think that's kind of really important to what we're discussing here, is what in response to these tragedies, and I, and I think here we're specifically talking about mass deaths in the U.S., you know, whether it's... Yeah, and we're also discussing things that are not in our local community. Correct. Because I, I do think if you are in a local community, I don't see how you cannot address such things. Yeah, precisely. But I think a question is, what tone do you want to take? Because I know one particular tone that you could take is to use it as an opportunity to kind of gather behind one's national identity. I think that's a strong desire that would come pretty naturally. And you would think maybe now is a good time to sing the national anthem or something. I have had that suggested by pastoral leadership, although I have to say it doesn't, in my experience, unless there is some pastoral guidance as to why we're singing such a song, it doesn't necessarily communicate to the congregation why you're even singing that. Yeah, exactly. I, and I think what I want to ask is, what is the specific tone that you think we want to take? Because I'm thinking when I was discussing this to plan our liturgy after the Las Vegas shooting, I specifically wanted a tone that, you know, for a Catholic congregation would be centered around kind of two poles. We'd have a tone of repentance for our complicity in the national guilt of gun violence. And then that we would also be offering the Mass as prayer for the dead. Those two separate poles, those were kind of where, where I was going, but I, I bet there are other poles. Like, well, I took a completely different tack. In the Presbyterian Church where I worked, I did, as I said, how from a foundation and by gracious right. powers. And then for the prelude, I did a meditation on This Is My Father's oh, World. There's yeah. a time of announcements and prayer requests and concerns before the prelude begins. So the congregation listens to my entire prelude basically in silence unless my son's starts singing, quote-unquote singing. Um, 
<laughs> but I prefaced the, I, I walked up to the podium. This would be normative in this congregation. I'm not saying this should be in all congregations, but in right. this congregation, in I walked up to the podium. I had some other announcements that I spoke through. We had had a music event the previous day that was wonderful. And then I transitioned. I was like, you know, and now let's, you know, let's talk about something serious. We've had this national tragedy. And I invited the congregation to meditate with me on the words of the hymn. And though the wrongs seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Right. This particular hymnal has two stanzas of the hymn. And I interpreted on the piano both stanzas of the hymn and invited the congregation to pray it with me. Oh, that's me. really beautiful. I feel like because I had that moment to preface the prelude, it invited people to meditate, to pray to pray with me in a very different way than it would have if I had just started playing it. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Not all congregations have that format where you can speak before you begin playing or even where you can put a note in a bulletin. Oh, sure, but in your particular context. Exactly, exactly. Like if I hadn't been able to speak, then I would have put a note in the bulletin. And if I hadn't been able to put a note in the bulletin, you know what? I might have played something like Locklear's The Peace May Be Exchanged or some other quiet, beautiful Right, because music. in that case, you would be going for the mood of, of the music instead of a meditation on the text itself. I feel like in a Presbyterian church, that is kind of the um, a different approach to take, whereas I, I can't see repentance or a requiem mass aspect. Right, right. Like for us, it was very natural to have the choir sing the requiem introit at the beginning of mass. It seemed part of our tradition, something that we could incorporate into that particular liturgy as a way to cue people. And even for the masses where there wasn't a choir, people could still look in the order of worship and see the text of the introit printed and kind of know that that was the context in which we were gathering. And did you change any other hymns besides adding Be Still My Soul? Uh, yeah, for the final hymn, we sang Jerusalem, My Happy Home as a kind of reflection on the... The eternal home of the believer? Right. I suppose it wasn't so much that as it, as it is a sense that at the end of all things, evil does not win. There's a sense of strong yearning in that hymn. The more I learn about shape note hymnity and and experience those times, I realize how caught up in death they are, in the reality of we die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes we die in tragic circumstances. And yeah, that's that's a whole nother thing. But there's so much truth in those texts as people grapple with the reality of this unnatural thing, death. Yeah, and Jerusalem, My Happy Home, is the, the text itself. Because I think the tune is... Is it an American shape note tune? I think it may be Land of Rest. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah. But the text is a really, really, really old text. Urbs be out of Jerusalem, I think. Really? I'm not positive. But it's a very old text, and each stanza describes a different aspect of the eternal city. You know, there David stands directing the choir. There Our Lady sings, surrounded by all the virgins, etc., etc. You know, I and think you know a different version of it than I do, because I'm sure in my Baptist Yeah, I think, I think you're thinking of something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably the Baptist hymnal is not celebrating Our Lady singing Magnificat, probably. No. So... But yeah, in that context, after a liturgy that contained so much opportunity for an expression of grief, it ended with an expression of our hope in an eternity in which God's justice has finally been declared. That's beautiful. And the oppressed have been vindicated. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I guess that is another poll that one could look at, is the triumph of justice in the face of so much wrongdoing. I think especially in other traditions, there might be more hymns that would address that directly. I think so. Yeah. I could see another angle for music to take, which is an idea of congregational unity or national unity or civic unity. Right. I also looked for hymns related to social justice, but in the end, I felt that that might be not inappropriate to the setting, but might be very uncomfortable. Right, because you don't want to take an occasion. I mean, we hear all the time 
after a tragedy, we hear people accusing each other of politicizing the tragedies. Well, it's not that I don't think that there should be political commentary. Absolutely. Like, I oh, do. right. I do. Yes. <laughs> of course. But if you are coming to a church service after something horrific has happened, what does your heart need? Right. We need both. We need the ability to come and grieve and mourn and offer that up to God and receive the comfort of God. And to say, I'm scared. Yeah. I think yeah. that is something that people feel very powerfully. Like, that could have been me. Yeah, precisely. And I think that the church, when we gather, is a safe place in which to express those very vulnerable feelings. Mm -hmm. And I think in our social contexts, we don't have that opportunity a lot. We're, we feel very safe around people who agree with us expressing yeah. political statements of action. You know, I desire to change this. We feel very comfortable expressing that, but mm -hmm. we don't really have another- I can call my lawmaker. Yeah, like call your mm -hmm. congressman, enact change. You know, that's something that we feel very comfortable mm -hmm. saying, but we don't have we don't have other spaces in which to say, I'm frightened right now, mm -hmm. or, yeah. or I feel moved by grief for people that I don't know. And what does it mean to feel grief for people that you don't know? How do I do that? Yeah, yeah, like I, I need the words. I need some expression, and I want to have that expression with other people mm -hmm. communally. And with other people who share the hope that I have of life after death. Yes! That. And of, of the righting of those wrongs, you know, I mean, if each Sunday is a celebration of the Paschal Mystery in its totality, the resurrection, you know, this is, this is we are not as those who have no hope. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that is the place where I see so much possibility in what a musician can do on Sunday. Yes. In those sorts of circumstances, because we can say to people, look, 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 this is what we're doing. Christ has risen. Christ has trampled down death by death. Yes. We can do that on Sunday. It's right there. And when someone is coming with a vulnerable heart, we can meet them. Yes. We can give them the freedom to express what they otherwise will have to keep bottled up within them. Mm -hmm. Well, this is how music is like a love song. I'm not a poet. I'm not going to make up my love poetry, but, you know, I can sing the love song. Right. It offers a really healthy religious catharsis, I think. Or just a way of giving word to fear, of giving word to hope in God. Right. To put that fear in the context of, you know, uh, for instance, on the cover of our order of worship, I found an image of the Virgin Mary lamenting over the dead Christ. And like that puts our lamentation, our sorrow and fear and grief and our lack of understanding about what all of this means in the context of that. This grief is not a grief that we alone bear. Mm -hmm. And this isn't the first time mm -hmm. that people of faith yes. have found themselves mm -hmm. without words to express how they feel about something that seems to move beyond their typical expressions of faith. Saying, I trust in God seems, like like we say all the time, like that rings shallow yes, when, yes. yeah, it rings hollow. Artwork like that also puts into the front of our minds that Christ is truly human. Yes, yeah. He suffered death and was buried. Yeah, he became, he humbled himself in every way possible. And also, I mean, this is specifically, I suppose, to certain traditions within the Christian community, we also see Our Lady's participation in that as well. And in a broader way, for all Christians, we see in the Gospels, the friends of Christ, the disciples of Christ, the loved ones of Christ, grieving. Yeah, yeah. And like handling their grief in ways that we can identify with. Like they ran away, you know, like, like they experienced sheer fright as well. I think another thing I wanted to ask is what do you think the role of music because what we've we've talked a lot about the roles of music with text, but what about 
What do you think about the role of music in a liturgy to express something without text in that context? And what I specifically wonder is, do you think there's a danger of emotional manipulation, or do you think that that is in itself a good thing? And specifically, I played a transcription of Barber's Adagio as the prelude, and I wonder about that. Is that good because it provides emotional catharsis, or is it in some sense manipulative? And I, I want to know, what, what are your thoughts about that? I think it's nice if music can be framed in the sense of a bulletin blurb or saying something. I don't think that that is manipulative. I mean, certainly that is not sentimental music. Right. But even if you were to play something outrageously sentimental, it's not like it's the soundtrack to a movie. It's service music. At the end of the day, what we're doing, like prelude, postlude, is service music. Right, right. In the sense of in service to the congregation, or you might also say like for the glory of God in a broader sense. And I'm sure that some people listened to the adagio for strings and said, what nice, pretty background noise. I'm checking my phone. Not to be down on the music, but I don't think that it in that setting would be manipulative. Like, how would that be manipulative? Well, I wonder because that music can, and I thought about this after I played it, I was just wondering, is music's ability to call memory into the forefront of our minds, is that something that we need to be aware of? Because of, of that music's association with national tragedies, which was, I suppose, the immediate reason why I chose to play it. But then I thought, I wonder yeah, if... Which is why I did the Nimrod Elgar. Yeah. Yeah, the Elgar and Nimrod variation. But I wondered afterwards, is that is that almost too on the nose? You know, is that... Well, you know, we're talking as if people are coming into a church service with a national tragedy at the very, very, very forefront of their mind, as if this had just happened. Oh, I suppose that's true. Especially for this last one, it was it was almost an entire week after. Yeah. But even if it had just been the day before, people coming into the church service, they don't know what's going to happen in the service. They don't know if you're going to ignore a national event entirely. Oh, that's true. Like I'm thinking of my mother talking about JFK dying and immediately all the little children going into mass right? Right. Obviously, that's right there, right there in the front of your mind. But in this case, that's why I think saying something like, we just had this wonderful festival at our church. Now we're going to have this more serious time. Come meditate with me. Come pray with me through This Is My Father's World. That, to me, is actually necessary unless there's another way of framing it, because otherwise it may be completely lost. Oh, I see what you're saying. So it provides people with an entry point into the liturgy. Yeah. Kind of a vestibule, if you will, like a musical vestibule. You know, you may be, <laughs> you may have just spent the morning actually just worrying about getting your kids dressed exactly. when they come to mass. Exactly. And, and yeah. So that quiet music is beautiful, and maybe for some people they're associating it with some sort of tragedy. But I think in general, that kind of non-texted prelude music is providing a space to be quiet. Right. We want to offer people the opportunity to not only express whatever it is that they're feeling you know, in response to the national tragedy through texts or through hearing texts proclaimed or singing texts, etc. But we want to enable them, you know, give them the opportunity to, within the stillness of their own hearts, either meditate or offer prayer or or whatever response they have, or just, just to be, to be still. And the music without text can offer that opportunity. So yeah, I'm really interested in what any listeners might think about this. You know, is is it possible that there is a point of view from which you might actually not want to respond to a national tragedy in the liturgy itself? Obviously, I think everyone would want to in the prayers that you would have in your service. But is there a perspective from which you wouldn't want to alter any aspect of the liturgy itself? 
Or if there's other ways that people can think of that they find to be an appropriate response for their services, I'd also like to hear that because unfortunately, this isn't the last time we're going to be thinking about this issue. I know, I know. One always hopes. You know, Lord, Lord have mercy, but this is where we are. Yeah. And I wonder, given that, it would be even helpful, I, I think, I would appreciate knowing what, what are specific hymns that people find meaningful in times like this? Is it just the familiarity of a good hymn that affirms truth? Is Amazing Grace something that people would want to sing at that time? Or should the hymns themselves... I had to think of This Is My Father's World differently. I had really never connected with that hymn before. Like, I'm not so into the tune. It's not really right. my kind of thing. It can seem a little bit anodyne. Yeah. But in that particular context, and especially that second, in this particular hymnal, it's the second stanza, especially in thinking, though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler. Yeah, that, yes. that yeah, it would was be. comforting. So I would be interested in hearing what specific hymns or pieces of music our listeners might suggest. Yeah, I hate to think of it this way, but I feel like I may end up with a list of hymns to turn yeah, to. Yeah, which is good because you want to be prepared for those moments and not be caught off guard by them, you know, and just being ruled by your own impressions at that moment. Yeah, I agree. I think that's, I think that's helpful. That's this week's episode of Music and the Church. What are your thoughts? Have any ideas for what to try at church? Our email is musicandthechurch at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or whatever source you use to listen to the podcast. Ratings and reviews will help other listeners find this show.